coming up today, how to recycle your pee, astronaut selection, and the great revival of the home printer. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Vicky Turk, and joining me today are Matt Burgess. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Amit Katwala. Hello. This was the week when a spreadsheet error meant that thousands of COVID test results in the UK were missed misplaced, meaning they may not have been immediately transferred into the contact tracing system. It was also the week when the Nobel Prize in Chemistry went to Jennifer Doudner and Emmanuel Charpentier for their work on the gene editing tool CRISPR. It's the first time that a science Nobel Prize has ever been won by an all-female team. This was also the week when the UK's data protection regulator said Cambridge Analytica was not involved in the Brexit referendum. The announcement came as the Information Commissioner closed a three-year investigation into the now-defunct company. And finally, this was the week when Facebook said it would stop running all political advertising, but after the polls closed in the US election. The company said the measure, which is only temporary, would help reduce opportunities for confusion and abuse after the polls close, but before the results come out. Am I missing something there, Amit? They're stopping political advertising after the polls close. What, what exactly is the point of that? Yeah, that's what a lot of people have said. So I think they're particularly worried about the confusion that might result in the aftermath of of a close vote. Uh, People are very worried about Donald Trump, you know, claiming victory when actually the mail votes haven't been counted yet or something like that. Or if, uh, you know, one candidate wins the uh, popular vote but doesn't actually win the Electoral College, then there could be confusion resulting from that. And, And Facebook, I guess, is worried that people will take advantage of the confusion by kind of using political advertising and kind of uh, riling up a particular group of the electorate into protesting or you know trying to sway the result one way or the other. So it's specifically targeting kind of misinformation around the the vote count around the results of the election rather than uh, you know campaigning or anything before. Well, they're they're actually they're actually banning all political and social issue campaigning f- for this kind of brief period after the election. They've they've actually already banned. Uh, ads that claim victory for a particular candidate. So they've kind of taken that step already. And I think this is just a further measure to ensure that there's no, I guess, I mean, it, I suspect there's going to be chaos anyway, but there's, there's no added chaos that can be pinned at Facebook's door, I guess, is what they're trying to uh, ensure here. Interesting. Well, yeah, let's hope that the chaos is reined in somewhat. Uh, interesting facts this week. Uh, Matt Burgess, let's go to you first. Uh, this week, I learned that uh, during the 1960s in the Vietnam War, the uh, US uh, tech and defense uh, organization, DARPA, um, tried to create a mechanical elephant that could carry items for soldiers, uh, with the idea being the elephant would go where uh, vehicles were sort of unable to move and across sort of rough terrain. Um, however, the project uh, actually didn't get anywhere and was shut down pretty quickly after the agency's director found out about it and essentially worried uh, that it would make a bit of a laughing stock of the organisation um, and see its funding potentially cut. I love that the agency's director didn't know about it until until they found out and, you know, their agency was... was potentially developing this 
mechanical elephant and they just didn't realize yeah it's a it's a strange one i guess maybe the agency is obviously so big that they wouldn't know about like experimental or some research projects uh straight away but um i guess at some point the uh, mechanical elephant will cross your path the elephant in the room matt reynolds literally no one laughed at my joke there (laughs) it was funny guys (laughs) matt reynolds what have you got for us so I learned that the 100 most commonly used words in the English language account for 50% of all written language in English, of course. So this has really important implications for how we teach English, especially to children that struggle with literacy skills. And I found this out in a really good Guardian feature. Maybe shouldn't be cross-promoting other other um, organisations, but they are out there. Um, so it's a really great feature uh, by Shirin Kale, which you should go check out. So it's all about maybe we're teaching... Um, children that struggle with literacy in the wrong way and and maybe there are better ways that take into account actually how people learn language and how people use language. What are some of those common words? Do we know? Presumably things like the and a. Yes, basically there is a list out there that that people can Google. It's stuff like and, but, um, all the pronouns, so I, he, she. um, And actually if you start paying attention to it, you realise how much of all the connecting words are just these um, very, very small words. And and people think that actually if we spend much more time concentrating on those connecting words, you can actually get people to a reasonable, children, you get them to a reasonable level of reading text without having to worry about, I don't know, tree and, and floor and all these kind of harder nouns that actually take quite a long time to grasp. Very interesting. Amit, what have you got for us this week? Uh, I have a, a question, uh, sort of a trick question. How many colours are there in a rainbow? So if it's a trick question, the only answer that we shouldn't pick is seven, because I think that's the Richard of York gave battle in vain thing. So I'm going to say there are eight colours. Any advance on Maybe eight? there's like, is, is it like infinite because it's like a spectrum? Yeah, that's it. But So obviously, as Matt said, the, the kind of general consensus is that there are seven colours in a rainbow, but there's no real reason why there should be seven colours in a rainbow. And actually, indigo and violet are basically the same colour. So clearly there's something odd going on here. So, And it's actually to do with Isaac Newton, who was, uh, as well as being the kind of father of modern physics, was also quite a superstitious guy. And he originally divided the rainbow into five colours uh, and then added an extra two because seven was kind of a, a lucky number. There were seven days of the week and seven musical notes. And back then, physicists were kind of working through the assumption that there was kind of some under, underlying rules of the universe that defined all these different things and kind of like, you know, explained it all. And that had something to do with the number seven. So when he saw this rainbow, which clearly didn't have seven colours, he just added an extra one to make it round it up to seven, which is why we have indigo and violet rather than say, you know, two colours that are much more different than than that. So there you go. Very interesting. Uh, That did used to really annoy me when I was uh, little and like, you know, at school drawing a picture of a rainbow and you'd reach for the colours for indigo and violet and you'd be like, there's only one. I've got to use the same crayon for both of them. Yeah, and if you look at the um, de- the depictions of rainbows in popular culture on things like Pride Flags or on um, the cover of that Pink Floyd album, you'll see that there's actually only six colours in a lot of cases because indigo and violet just get smushed into one. This podcast is sponsored by Wash Pass by Candy. Wash Pass is a new subscription service that combines a smart washing machine with a dynamic auto-dosing system. Candy estimates that you'll get up to 70% better washing results than the traditional leading brands. 
based on its lab performance tests. To find out more about the first subscription washing service, visit bit.ly forward slash wired dash candy. That URL again is bit.ly forward slash wired dash candy. Our first story today is all about urine. Matt Reynolds, you've been uh, looking into this world. I I have, Vicky, yeah. So... This is going to start with a dilemma that no one is going to be familiar with. It's the dilemma that Portaloo managers uh, experience on a daily basis. So say I'm the manager of a Portaloo company. You know, maybe maybe Portaloo is a British word, actually, but you know, chemical toilets that you have at festivals and um, you know, outdoor events and those kind of, kind of things. And the one thing that Portaloo managers have a lot of is pee, gallons and gallons of the stuff. After every festival, every party, every event you host, you've got to do something with all of this we. So naturally, you're having a whinge with your friend. And funnily enough, your friend says they know exactly what you should be doing with all of that urine. You should be turning it into fertiliser. Now, that might sound a little bit weird, but this is actually the true origin story. And this is um, the person who's that uh, manager of the fertiliser company that was talking to the portly manager. It's a guy called Michael Rose, and he's the founder of a French company called Toupie Organics. And what Toupie want to do is turn all of that pee into fertiliser, so making use of something that we flush away on a daily basis. Okay, I, th- I think I'm going to need some more information here. Um can we actually use pee as fertilizer? I'm assuming because the company wants to do this, it's technically possible. <laughs> yeah, they, they weren't just like, oh, we'll use anything for fertilizer, let's just go for it. So it's, it's fairly, it makes sense really, right? So the most important uh, ingredients of any fertilizer are nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium. And pee actually has all of those things. And in fact, that's kind of why Kanye West, funnily enough, when he was describing his new compound site that he kind of was designing in Wyoming, it featured a urine garden, which was nourished by the pea that would be produced on site. So strangely enough, Kanye West is kind of taking the lead in this area. Now, the problem is, is that you need vast quantities of pea to be really useful. So urine contains just a fifth of the nitrogen that you find in bottled fertilizer, which you might buy in a garden store, and it contains less than 5% each of the potassium and phosphorus. So the challenge facing Michael Rose was how do you turn this uh, fertilizer into something that can compete with industrial products? And what he did was he started mixing urine with some bacteria that he suspected would boost how much of this nitrogen, this phosphorus and potassium that plants could access. So essentially what he did, he got these huge vats of pea, he got these, um, you know, this bacteria and he mixed it up with this pea into a lovely kind of supercharged urine, which basically meant when the plants got hold of it, or when it was you know, applied to plants, they could much more readily ex- um, access, access the, um, the nutrients that are in the urine. So it's all about mixing bacteria of urine to help them get more out of it. So does this actually work? Do the plants like it? So it seems that the plants do like it. Now, the good thing about plants is they're not really that fussy about what they get as long as they get it from somewhere. So we know that plants, you know, grow pretty well under UV light, for for instance, because actually all they really care about is that light is of a certain wavelength. It doesn't matter so much whether it comes from a light or it comes from the sun. And in early testing from TP, uh, they found that the urine-based fertiliser 
performed pretty well compared to chemical fertilizers. So this is a test done with the National School of Agricultural Engineering in Bordeaux in uh, southern France. And they found that the fertilizer helped corn plants grow from 60 to 110% when they were compared to a mineral fertilizer. So pretty exciting results. Although, you know, this was a study done with the company. So maybe, you know, take it with a slight pinch of salt, but it certainly seems to work. And, you know, based on these findings and based on this, you know, fundamental principle, the company's opened its first site, which is near Bordeaux. At the moment, it basically consists of a warehouse with lots and lots of vats of pea and some um, incubators where pea is kind of jiggled around with these bacteria to, you know, help the bacteria grow and and make sure that they're you know, present when it gets uh, made into the fertilizer. But Next door, we've got a tent full of tomato plants. They're undergoing tests to see how this urine-based fertilizer works. And eventually, the startup wants to process between one or two million litres of pea every year. And this process basically involves, you know, warming the urine up, like I described, and then shaking it around. And the idea is they would, yeah, produce around, you know, two million litres through that method. Um, this all seems kind of quite complicated and a bit kind of gross. There must be, like, a reason for them to do this rather than using a kind of normal fertilizer so what's what's driving this is it cost or is it the environment why why are they so keen to try and repurpose urine in this way yeah, it's not like your go-to, is it? You wouldn't necessarily reach for pee if you had other options. But actually, um, it could be a really, really interesting solution. And you know, for that reason, there's lots of people that really believe in the, you know, making much more out of our waste products because they say, well, essentially, we put all this energy into you know, feeding our bodies, but actually, we just flush away the waste and then essentially pay to process that, use energy to process that waste. And we don't really get much out of it. And the reason why this could be particularly lucrative and particularly useful when it comes to urine is because there are lots of problems with the way we currently produce fertilizer. So about half of all the crops that are in the world are grown using synthetic fertilizer. And this is going to be a little bit of a return to the, uh, you know, our chemistry GCSE days, perhaps. But that artificial fertilizer is made using the Haber-Bosch process. And what that does is it takes nitrogen from the atmosphere and it basically fixes it into fertilizer. But nitrogen doesn't really like to come from the atmosphere into, into fertilizer so that's a really really energy intensive process and in fact globally around one to two percent of all energy used each year goes towards making fertilizer that we're literally peeing out for free now there's another problem in that all of that nitrogen fertilizer we're not super great at actually using it so what happens is that farmers apply it to the fields and obviously they apply it quite liberally because you'd much rather fertilize too much than not fertilize enough and end up having your plants not grow that much but that nitrogen ends up flowing into waterways it flows into rivers and eventually out into the sea and what that does is that it causes um, algae in the sea kind of you know grows on that fertilizer it's having an absolute field day and that uses up loads and loads of oxygen in the water and creates these um, you know what are often called dead zones in lakes or in rivers. I mean, we've had it in Lake Erie before, and actually in the Gulf of Mexico, there's a very large dead zone, and that's all because of this nitrogen runoff. Now, switching your fertilizer to urine wouldn't exactly solve that problem, because there are problems if the urine ran off as well, and that is actually a problem with sewage treatment plants. But people are arguing that essentially, if we just try and conserve our use of these materials and make more out of we've got, make more out of what we've got and what we're producing, we'll have a, a much more, um, you know, a system that has a lot less waste, and also requires a lot fewer energy inputs as well so it's all about being more efficient in how we use resources and how we apply those to our food system all right well you've been persuasive i think um, i'm i'm convinced what how can i get involved how can i put my pee 
into something that's going to grow into a lovely plant. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. And we're all little pea factories anyway. So we all can play a role in this, maybe. So each human produces around 450 litres of urine a year. So in the UK, that adds up to about 30 billion litres that we flush away. And as I said, we use clean water, which is actually a pretty scarce resource as well. So actually, at the moment, we're not just, you know, not using our pea, we're actually kind of paying with other resources to get rid of it. Now, the question that is facing 2P organics is how do we get hold of all that urine? Now, you'll know, of course, that modern toilets flush everything, pee and poo, down together. So it makes it impossible to actually separate that waste. So that's, um, it's not really separated, it's kind of filtered at sewage treatment plants. There are toilets that are called no-mix toilets that have been trying to solve this problem. So a Swedish company um, in the 1990s um, you know, invented the type of toilet where essentially the pee goes into one section and the poo goes into another and you can kind of siphon off all of that pee. Um, and a German company called a to- uh, made a toilet that called the no-mix toilet around the turn of the millennium. But apparently men didn't like having to sit down because you have to get the angle right because the pee essentially has to kind of flow over a special... Um, I guess kind of like diverting a little little hole and eventually the company stopped making them. So a lot of you know what we call in the piece P evangelists, they think that as long as we can get the right toilets, we'll be able to separate this out. But it probably does require us to change our toilets and slightly change how we use our water and how we plumb our bathrooms. Yeah, and if, if we're going to get to that um, world where there is a P-evolution, then I think that you'll that's like a huge change that will have to happen. So what's 2P going to do next? Yeah, so 2P are not banking on the mass uptake of uh, waste separating loos, which I think is a good idea because it's pretty difficult to kind of get everyone on board and, and yeah, that's, that's a pretty big change. But what they are saying is they could, of course, source pee from urinals, especially at places like um, music festivals where loads of this is just kept into, you know, tanks and is just stored. Even then they would need a huge quantity to s- source it and produce the fertiliser at scale. But the company is already in talks with anyone and everyone who might be able to supply it. So this is people like medical labs, festivals, construction companies that have portaloos on their building sites and most excitingly of all for them there's a potential partnership with the the Stade de France which is home of the national football and rugby teams and this is a stadium sort of 80,000 fans most of them probably drinking some beer probably visiting the toilet a few times and that could generate a vast amount of of urine that could be really really useful at the moment though they're not really producing a whole lot so most of that urine that they're you know currently jiggling around in their bordeaux site that's for tests before they're allowed to launch they'll have to submit their fertilizers fertilizers for rigorous testing so at the moment they're kind of going through this kind of regulation project uh, process with the french government to make sure that you can put it on fields that it's not going to run off and you know get into wildlife or cause any problems but once they've got the red uh, the green light there they hope that Actually, they should be able to market and sell their fertilizer in France and beyond, you know, wider in Europe. So they're kind of in these beginning phases at the minute. They need to pass some regulatory hurdles before they can really start putting it to use. But they're pretty convinced that it works and they can sell it for cheaper than synthetic uh, fertilizer. And it's just as good. So they say, once we get it in the hands of farmers, why wouldn't they want to switch to, to pea-based fertilizer? Well, it's the recycling story I never thought I'd hear. Thanks for bringing that on, Matt. Um, to be clear, is it a good idea to pee on your garden? 
I would say maybe don't, you know, you know, in in desperate situations, it's not going to be terrible, uh, you know, but I would, I would maybe just wait for someone else to turn it into fertiliser. It might smell bad, really. That seems like a, a bad idea. It's not maybe not kind to your neighbours. Yeah, maybe hold off on the home experiments for now and uh, let the pros figure out how best to do it. Amit, you've got the next story for us on astronaut selection through the ages. Tell us more. Yeah, that's right. So there's a new uh, TV series coming out on Disney Plus uh, tomorrow as we're recording, so Friday, called The Right Stuff. Uh, This is based on a 1970s book by Tom Wolfe, a really famous nonfiction book about some of the first American astronauts. Uh, The book was later made into a movie and it's now now being remade into a television series looking at the selection process for the Mercury astronauts in the early 1960s. So these these were the kind of first efforts to get an American into space after the Russians uh, managed to defeat NASA was kind of scrambling to catch up. Uh, so this week, we've been looking at what, what we mean by the right stuff um, and how the skills and traits required of top astronauts have changed since those kind of early days into into now. So starting with those early astronauts, I mean, what were they like? What sort of characteristics were people looking for in astronauts at that time? So they, they were kind of... They were kind of these kind of brash, sort of egotistical, uh, you know, daredevils. There's this kind of classic uh, kind of archetype of, you know, the guy who plays by his own rules. Um, so they had this kind of mythical allure to them. They were known as the Mercury Seven, the kind of first group of people that were selected for this first uh, American spaceflight program. Um, so one uh, former NASA astronaut we spoke to kind of referred to those first guys as superheroes. He says, he says they could do anything. Um, and then... You know, you have to think of, you know, in, in the 60s and 70s uh, with Mercury, Gemini and Apollo, these people were really heading into the unknown, right? You know, they didn't know what was awaiting for them when they went into orbit. You know, the, the, the dangers were much higher than they are now. We didn't know how people would cope with being in space, how they might handle being on the moon. Uh, so that meant that the, the, the space program was looking for a very particular kind of candidate. So they basically looked to the military at that point, saying, you know, they wanted kind of very fit, very athletic individuals, uh, according to a senior lecturer in aerospace physiology from King's College. Essentially, they were kind of looking for alpha males in inverted commas because that was kind of what they thought was required from a physical point of view. And that meant that women were often kind of frozen out. I mean, it wasn't even considered that that women might be able to do this back then. Um, They also prioritised pilots uh, because obviously, you know, they needed to kind of manually control these vehicles because they weren't there weren't the kind of computer software programs to kind of help steer them at the time. Uh, And then they also had to be able to handle extreme situations. So you you all have seen those kind of footage of like astronaut or prospective astronauts kind of being spun in like a centrifuge to make sure they could handle the the G forces that were expected to have to face when they went into space. Yeah, I, I don't know if this is relevant, but I saw a video of, I think it was Buzz Aldrin, punching someone in the face that claimed that the Mars, or sorry, the moon landing was, was fake. And I guess that kind of ties into exactly what you're saying. Now, I can't imagine some of our most famous astronauts today, maybe Tim Peake or Commander Chris Hadfield, I can't see them punching someone in the face. They've, you know, they, they, they've got a soft slightly you know friendly media friendly vibe to them they look like they could be i don't know a mass teacher at a local school or something so i'm guessing the type of people that space agencies are looking for to become astronauts that the the model has changed a little bit since then yeah there was there was a story about one of the one of the kind of astronauts who was selected in the 80s and, and he was asked um what are you best at and his response was killing people with knives uh, so that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of changed. You can't imagine Tim Peake saying that, can you, or Chris Hadfield? Um, 
So the selection process is very different now to, to what it was then. It's not quite as exciting as the movies would have you believe, according to some of the people we spoke to. They don't do that spinning thing until you vomit anymore, uh, for instance. Um, so astronauts have kind of had this rebranding of sorts. So there's a very different set of traits that's deemed much more valuable. So they have to be kind of strong team players with a broad range of skills. They need to be able to communicate and work well with others. Uh, and that military experience that used to be kind of so prized has been replaced by degrees or other relevant skills. So if you want to be a NASA astronaut, for example, you have to have a master's degree in a STEM subject. So um, you want to select people who are able to cooperate with other human beings is what uh, ESA astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti told us. Um, she says the biggest change has been a focus on teamwork, communication and cooperation as opposed to individual achievement. So when did this uh, sort of like shift in what we see the necessary skills for an astronaut uh, to have really start to happen? Was it around the time, was it sort of like after we'd done some of our first missions um, to the moon and elsewhere, after some of that like initial unknown was sort of tackled? Um, when did it really, when did it change? Yeah, like, you know, I, they, I guess those first kind of two decades of space exploration, we were constantly pushing the envelope of what was possible. And then after we got to the moon, things kind of retreated into kind of a more familiar pattern. So it it really started to change when, when the space shuttle started going up regularly because that meant that you didn't necessarily need to be an expert pilot to get there because, you know, there was room for up to seven people on board. So not everyone needed to have the skill set required to actually pilot the shuttle. Um, so that meant they could take other people up there, like specialists in science and engineering to, you know, do experiments or, you know, do research or whatever. So um, that's kind of how it started. And today it's kind of progressed into astronauts there's kind of a basic level of skills and attributes that you need. Uh, and then they kind of tend to specialize in a particular area. So you might be a jack of all trades uh, in that you know how to do a spacewalk, you know how to help with the systems on the vehicle, but then you might specialize in say botany or a particular area of research. And that's why you kind of go up there to, to further human knowledge in that area. Um, and then the other thing that's really important is kind of handling the challenges of modern international space flights. So that means you need to be able to work with uh, astronauts from other countries such as Russia and China which might mean speaking their languages and kind of being able to work in that kind of uh, confined environment of the International Space Station if you go up there for example so working with people with different personalities from different backgrounds incorporating them in an environment where you can't just you know pop outside for five minutes to take a breather and then the final thing Matt you kind of alluded to it, alluded to it earlier when we were talking about Tim Peake and Chris Hadfield's right public relations are so much more important now than they were in the 1960s. So astronauts are very much the kind of face of NASA or the ESA, and they've kind of got to do a job of public outreach and education. You know, these programs cost billions of dollars and, and you know, the astronauts play an important role in showing people the value of them. So do we think this will continue to evolve in future? Will the ideal astronaut candidate change as we go on to sort of longer missions to to mars or venus or wherever it might be in the future yeah so i think in the short term it's probably not going to change that much from where we are right now so we spoke to the european space agency who are running astronaut selection next year and they're, they're using the same criteria that they used in 2009 for instance we, we've not seen that much change in the last kind of decade but yeah as you say vicky as we kind of go further afield the role of astronauts might change again so you know there may be missions to other places in orbit, whether that's new orbit, orbiting, you know, um, systems, because the ISS is obviously scheduled to be uh, junked pretty soon, um, or, you know, further afield to the moon or Mars, you know, we're going to be talking about kind of longer journeys, more confined space. Uh, so the ability to cooperate is going to become more and more important. 
um, especially because the kind of delay in communication means that crews will need to be more independent. So that emphasis on team playing, working together and being autonomous is going to be the future. So you still need kind of the right stuff, but it's just it's very different set of stuff to what was required maybe in the 60s or 70s. Let us know if you've got any comments on any of the stories in the podcast this week. It's the usual email address, podcast at wired.co.uk. On to our third story this week, which is about home printers that uh, oft overlooked, I guess, technology. Um, so, yeah, this is about how lockdown has changed our lives and how this is reflected in consumer behaviour. As lockdowns came in, we saw surges in demand for certain products as people rushed to stock up on the essentials. Things, of course, like toilet roll, dried pasta, face masks, yeast, of course, for all that baking. And it turns out home printers. So a question to all of you three. Do you have a printer at home? Would you consider getting one if you don't? So I, until recently, I had a printer that I have faithfully lugged around since my university days from flat to flat and never really got it out apart from very last minute printing a boarding pass or something I had to do. And then I let it go on Gumtree for I think the princely sum of £15 maybe. So yeah, I, I was one of those people that got rid of my printer, but now I'm kind of thinking it would actually come in pretty useful to be honest. I haven't had one since since I left uni, I don't think. So whenever I need to print anything, I either do it at work on the sly or go to my mum's house and print it there if I happen to be going there for, for another reason. Uh, so yeah, just, just haven't had one for more than, more than a decade now. I've had like two or three over the last uh, probably decade really. And every single time I just, I hate them. They just, they're useless uh, pieces of junk and like they print one document off and then break or you have to pay 50 quid for a new ink cartridge or something and yeah I, I'd never want to own another home printer ever again. I think a lot of your experiences are quite relatable. Uh, Matt Burgess will get to some of those bugbears later in the show because I do think it's it's a bit of a reputation that um, some printers have had certainly from a while ago and uh, Amit I think to your point I, I imagine a lot of people are in the same boat where you know in our digital world how often do you really need to print something and um, if you work in an office then you'll just use the office printer and if you've got some personal printing to do maybe you'll just kind of sneakily do it on your lunch break or something I imagine you're not the only one who does that uh, but since the pandemic hit it's probably unsurprising that demand for home printers has surged as people no longer have access to the office in many cases. So I spoke to some printer companies to see what they had observed. And uh, Brother, which makes printers along with other devices, told me that from around April to June, it saw a surge of 30% in sales of mono laser printers and 42% in sales of colour laser printers. HP and Epson, two other big names in printing, also say they saw massive surges in demand and the chief commercial officer of Dixon's Carphone which obviously sells uh, appliances and electronics told me that as soon as they could get stock of printers during lockdown it was immediately sold they've seen a huge increase around 450% in all computing peripherals so not just printers but also things like headsets keyboards all that sort of thing so it seems like the humble home printer is really having a massive revival in interest is that revival uh, and the surge in, in purchases, is it really because of the obvious reason, Vicky? 
Well, yeah, I mean, so the switch to work from home is is an obvious answer to why people might be buying these products. I think everyone, um, you know, when they realized that they might not be in the office much more, kind of rushed to set up their home office. And um, the printer companies I spoke to said that there was very much a peak right at the beginning of lockdown. So I think when people realized that this might be their life for, for the foreseeable um, and realized that what they would be missing that they maybe took for granted uh, in the workplace usually. But it's not just working from home. Um, everyone I spoke to also mentioned learning from home. Um, so obviously as schools closed in the first lockdown in the UK and children were at home, um, parents were put in a position of having to kind of teach themselves or entertain their kids. And so things like printing out handouts and worksheets or even things like colouring in puzzles, that sort of thing, um, could have also contributed to this increase in demand. Um, and especially, you know, I guess parents looking to entertain their kids away from the screen. You know, yes, you might be able to get a lot of this stuff digitally, um, but maybe you don't want your, your kids sort of on the tablet or on a laptop all day. So you want them to have a pen and pencil at some point. And it's a trend that um, Ed Connolly from Dixon's Carphone says extends beyond just the printer, he says they, they saw massive increases in small TVs, which at first seemed a little bit puzzling, but then he realised people were probably using them as monitors at home. So installing that second screen, again, kind of basically pimping out their home office now that they have to spend time with it. And it even extended to things like vacuum cleaners and coffee machines with people, you know, spending more time in the home and perhaps just realising um, how much they... they kind of appreciated having these different appliances around you know if you're making your own coffee every day instead of going to a cafe if you're at home making mess <laughs> looking at your floors maybe you suddenly realize actually I could use an upgraded vacuum cleaner and with printers I think um, a lot of people maybe realize that old one was due an upgrade or of course they just didn't have one originally and switched by one when they couldn't go to the office anymore so um yeah the the companies i spoke to said like there were times when you know it was really hard to actually get enough stock to meet the demand what kind of features i mean one of the reasons i don't have a printer is because well hardly because yeah i could do it at work before but even if i wanted one now there isn't just physically enough space for me to have one i don't think you know every flat surface in our house currently is a, is a work from home space so but what kind of features are people going for when they when they are buying them now? What, and how is it kind of helping them do this whole work from home thing? Yeah, it does seem that there has been a little bit of an advance in printer tech, actually. Amit, you said the last time that you had one was probably when you were at university. Um, and Matt Reynolds as well, you said yours was pretty old. Matt Burgess, you said, you know, you haven't had great experiences with, with printer technology in the past. Well, maybe it's time to give it another go, um, because from what, from the people I've spoken to, it seems that things have, have moved on from kind of those memories of, um, you know, yelling expletives at your printer as it refused to connect to your computer or, or you know, ran out of ink halfway through printing an important document. Um, so some of the features that people seem to be going for are smaller printers, so um, a much smaller, pr smaller footprint um, than you might imagine. Uh, from the past to kind of 
you know, shove away wherever you can in the house. And also Wi-Fi enabled is almost expected by default now. So, you know, you're not having to plug in with a cable into your computer. You can just connect over Wi-Fi, which means um, that, you know, you can have it anywhere in the house. You don't necessarily have have to find a spot for it just on your desk next to where you've, you've set up your office. And also you can print from things like smartphones, um, which in the past, of course, wasn't possible. Um, so Wi-Fi is sort of the key thing that everyone said. And everyone I spoke to said, you know, reliability is the key thing with a printer. You want it to just work when you need it to. And they're also seeing increased interest in some newer features um, that address particularly that problem of ink. Um, so, you know, you run out. It's never a good time to run out of printer ink. It always feels like it's way too expensive. So things like larger ink tanks in printers rather than ink cartridges are um, seeing an increase in interest and also subscription services to ink. So um, various printer makers, printer manufacturers now offer services where you can subscribe to a certain amount of pages and, um, you know, the ink will just be sent to you automatically, um, you know, every month or however often it might be. Or even, you know, printers that can recognize when your levels are getting low and get it shipped out to you before you've, you've really noticed yourself. That's still quite a new area, the, this idea of printer subscriptions. Um, so it's still quite small, but it has seen a fair bit of growth in this period when people are, are showing such interest in printing technology in general. And most people these days are looking for a multifunctional machine. So not just printing, but something that can copy or scan as well. Um, one person I spoke to, Alice Ramsden de Gomez, she's product manager at Epson UK, says that basically people don't see it as such a disposable item anymore. Well, maybe in the past, they, they sort of saw it as something um, that they didn't expect to last very long. Um, and now she says people are maybe um, coming around to the idea of putting a bit more investment into the piece of technology. Now, I remember when lockdown got underway, a lot of people went out and they thought, let's get a dog or cat to, you know, provide some company. But then the RSPCA warned, you know, there's going to be a dearth of abandoned dogs and cats when people head back to the office. Are we going to face a similar situation with the printers? People are going to be abandoning their printer, leaving them on, you know, trash piles and, and throwing them away. Or do you think this has proven the worth of the printer and now it's back to stay as a household favourite? I think we'll have to wait and see really, Matt. I mean, a lot of this depends on that ongoing question of what the new normal will look like, as people like to call it. Um, you know, is this kind of pivot to work from home a, a, a quick stopgap while we get, get on top of COVID-19? Will we all end up just going back to our usual habits once the, the virus is not such a threat? Or are people going to be working from home much more regularly and much more commonly now in which case maybe having your own printer is if not essential then a big benefit um so it really depends on those trends i think a lot of the the printer manufacturers think that you know maybe the work from home trend will last um one someone i spoke to at hp said that basically this is sort of years and years of um you know evolution in the way we work that just has been crammed into a tiny space um, by virtue of the pandemic. Um, and they have the the manufacturers I spoke to say um, that levels still haven't returned like quite to normal. There's still a bit of increased demand 
compared to the usual steady demand, because usually it is pretty flat demand for printers. Um, so there is, it seems that there is still interest there. Um, and they're, they're all basically doing their best to try to meet that, um, because of course they're all dealing with the pandemic as well. Um, a lot of uh, electronic equipment is made in other countries, especially in, in Asian countries. And so the supply chain has been affected by the pandemic. Um, everyone's trying to get hold of more stock from the suppliers. Everyone's trying to store more stock so that they have it ready to go. Um, and so it's a bit of a logistical um, kind of challenge for people as well. One of the weirder things I, I found out as an aside <laughs> um, is uh, Brother, which makes printers, um, who I spoke to, I asked them if there were any particular models or anything like that that they'd noticed that were popular. And they said, aside from kind of the regular home printers that they've been selling, uh, there's one model they have which is designed to be portable. Uh, so you can take it with you and... Um, you know, it can be used, for example, by if you're a contractor, you're going into people's homes to do work, maybe you want to print off a contract, print off an invoice, something like that. So it's designed to be really small to be used on the go. Now, they would have perhaps expected demand for that particular product to really dip during the pandemic because those were the sort of people who often were not able to do their jobs anymore. But they say that they've seen quite high demand for this product. And uh, after doing some digging, they think the reason is because this printer is favoured by another industry, the tattoo industry. So apparently tattoo artists use this printer to print off stencils of their designs so that they can see it on paper and kind of place it on the person's body that they're going to tattoo before they actually commit to putting the ink in their skin. Uh, and so they suggest that although, um, you know, I think a lot of tattooists or most in the UK certainly couldn't work uh, at the peak of the lockdown. Um, it seems that maybe there is a bit of a bit of a peak in interest in tattooing as well. That's a good fact. It's a good uh, printer-related fact. <laughs> Probably the most fun fa printer-related fact that there is. Yeah, I'd love to learn more about that. If you have recently got a tattoo and you notice that the tattoo artist had <laughs> a kind of strange printer, if you are a tattooist. Um, I'm very intrigued in this uh, this niche product need. So let us know, podcast at wired.co.uk. Want to know what's coming next? If you do, then join us for Wired Smarter, our annual conference about the future of business and innovation. It's taking place virtually from October 13th to 15th. We're running the whole thing like a fancy TV show split into six 90-minute episodes featuring some of the smartest minds out there, including serial entrepreneur Marcia Kilgore, Ocado Chief Technology Officer Paul Clark, and Mark Reed, CEO of advertising agency WPP. It's insightful, interactive, and podcast listeners can get 50% off. Head to wired.uk slash smarter and use the discount code podcast50 to pick up your discount pass. That's wired.uk slash smarter. And the discount code is podcast, all caps, 5050. So pick up your discount pass there. We've got some feedback from readers last week. Mike writes in. So 
Absolutely. Mike says, in your podcast on 27th of September, Matt Reynolds, that's me, talked about the very low percentage of people who actually self-isolate when told to do so. Mike has an idea that might help with this. He writes, why can't the new NHS COVID-19 app automatically add those it's told to self-isolate to the supermarket priority list for food delivery slots? This could be limited to a period of two or three weeks and remove one of the obstacles to self-isolating by improving access to grocery supplies. Yeah, I actually think this is a fairly sensible approach. This idea certainly makes sense. Actually, I had a look at the reasons why people left home after developing symptoms. And the top one, 18.2% of people, said it was to go to the shops for groceries or to visit pharmacies. So I think this... We should be thinking about ways that we can make it easier for people to self-isolate, maybe by providing better health care, providing you know, easier access to prescriptions. All of these things you know, help around the edges. Though I have to add the caveat, which, as we were talking about this before the show, Amit mentioned, well, the COVID-19 app's not very good at alerting you if you've come into contact with someone that has COVID-19. How is it actually going to be, you know, be able to be linked up with Tesco groceries? I think that's a really valid um, uh, thing to point out. I'd be a little bit worried that the, the NHS app would start randomly ordering people food all over the country and everyone would have you know, 75 ready meals that they didn't really ask just because they'd come two feet away from someone that didn't have COVID-19. But I think Mike's core point that actually we should be looking at ways to make it easier for people to comply with self-isolation is totally uh, on the right, you know, on the right um, uh, direction and the government should be thinking about ways to make it easier. Excellent idea from Mike. Uh, who knows, maybe there's someone out there listening who can, who can get that to the right ears and, uh, yeah, innovate um, to help solve this issue of people not self-isolating. Let us know if you've got any... Um, uh, crazy or, or not crazy ideas of, of maybe how tech could be helped, could be used to help people out um, in what's looking like more and more uh, of the country in lockdown. You've been listening to the Wide UK podcast. Thanks for joining us. We'll be here again next week. Uh, until then, have a good time. Bye. 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 Bye.